an outsider. Like you're kind of on the outside looking in. You don't quite fit in. You're not part of the group. I think everyone realizes it, that you're the only one that is separated. There's loneliness there. I don't belong, you might say. Or sometimes we feel like fish, you know, we're going in the wrong direction. Everyone's going one way, and we're the blue fish going in the opposite way. And sometimes that's how believers feel. But there is a sense of great loneliness. Anne Rice, the popular American author, author of gothic fiction, has stated the fact that she feels very much alone. She feels like that there is no place that she fits in, that she'll never be part of another group. She is also someone who had become very popular writing a collection of uh, fiction called the Vampire Chronicles, but then has turned to Christ, I've heard, in later years. I hope she doesn't still feel that way. But she's popular, yet feels like she's on the outside. And the famous movie actor, Leonardo DiCaprio, says something similar. I think I will always feel like an outsider. I find it interesting because that word is used in the Bible to speak of a group of people, the outsiders. When we read Ephesians chapter 1, as we have been studying it and reading it and meditating on it, in Ephesians chapter 1, we see from verse 3 to verse 14 this great poem of praise that the Apostle Paul begins his letter with. 200 words, one sentence in the original. Our translations maybe have five sentences to them. But it's just one continuous stream of praise. It's God's eulogy. Not that he's dead. <laughs> he will never die. But Paul is eulogizing the great, majestic, sovereign God. Three times we have the repeated refrain, to the praise of his glory to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. And we've noticed a very clear Trinitarian character to all of this poem. This poem deals with the past, and it deals with the present, and it deals with the future, and it deals with God the Father, and it deals with God the Son, and it deals with God the Holy Spirit, very Trinitarian in nature. And some even believe it might be an ancient creed that Paul is just picking up. And as he perhaps did in other letters, uh, he would sometimes re-paraphrase or paraphrase and use it for his own purpose, but a clear link to what the people of God believe. We've been talking about God as the origin of the plan of redemption and Christ as the one who executes the plan, who accomplishes the plan. And the Holy Spirit is the one who applies the plan. The plan began before we did, before time did. In eternity past, verse 4 tells us, but in time Christ came and died for our sins. And we noticed last week that ultimately God is going to, verse 10, put in effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, everything in the universe coming under the lordship the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Everything 
finding harmony and unity in him to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, and that head is Jesus Christ. It's glorious to think of it. God plans to bring this fallen world governed by what appears to be random and chaotic events, not only in nature, but in our own personal lives. All of that into a united cosmos where Jesus Christ is king. That's the hope we have. Now, verse 11 says, In him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. What a great statement. Maybe the strongest and most comprehensive statement of God's absolute sovereignty in all of the Bible. It tells us no matter what happens, God works in and through all that happens. This is Romans 8, 28, where Paul wrote to the church at Rome, all things harmonize, all things work together. God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. See, if God wasn't sovereign and didn't have a plan, then all things couldn't work together to a harmonious end. His plan is stated in Romans 8, 29, and 30, just like it is here in Ephesians chapter 1. It's the same theology. Now, for some, the sovereignty of God is strong medicine to swallow. Because to swallow that medicine, you have to swallow your own pride. And we often choke on that. We're too invested in ourselves. But once we understand God's loving providence and wise sovereignty and that he is the judge that does all things well, understanding this, swallowing this strong medicine, it becomes wonderfully therapeutic. It becomes the basis upon which a solid, mature Christian life is built. Now, I want to spend just a moment looking at the word chosen in verse 11 because I don't think that's really the best translation My NIV has a footnote that says, we were made heirs. And the Greek word has the idea of selecting, but that's kind of behind the scenes. The most important thought is that we are made heirs. That is, God's talking about our inheritance. In him, it either says we were given an inheritance or we become God's inheritance. I like the way it states it in the Amplified Bible. In him, we also were made God's heritage, God's portion. In other words, when we trust Christ, we get the inheritance of all his riches, and he gets us. (laughs) Doesn't sound like a very good deal, but that's exactly what he gets. And that's what he wants. In the Old Testament, this phrase, God's possession, was used exclusively for Israel. But now, in the New Testament, here's the emphasis that we are his portion. We also will obtain an inheritance, to be sure, and that's mentioned in verse 14. But we are God's inheritance. In the Old Testament, he said of Israel, Malachi chapter 3, that they will be mine, they are mine, in the day when I take them up as my treasured possession. And in the New Testament, Titus chapter 2 and verse 14 God says the same thing about us. 
all believers. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us and purify unto himself a special people, a people of his own, treasured to be his possession. You'll notice in verse 14, it states it very clearly. We are God's possession. He has guaranteed us an inheritance, and we are God's possession. So the trade doesn't seem very fair. He gets us, and we get all his riches. But that's exactly what this portion of Scripture is talking about. And that's why, over and over again, it says, to the praise of his glory. I agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones that perhaps if you were going to choose just one word, one term, to describe God, you couldn't go wrong by choosing the term glory. Because that's who he is, and that's what he does. Now, look at verse 12. We have this comprehensive statement in verse 11 that we are God's inheritance, and he has pre-marked us out for that. It's according to his plan, and everything works in harmony to his plan and purpose. Verse 12, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Verse 13, and you were included in Christ. Now, the we and you are rather significant at this point. Paul begins to use these pronouns to differentiate between the Jewish race And the Gentile race, Paul was a Jew. And he says, we were the first ones to hope in Christ, verse 12. And again, the first believers in Jesus indeed were Jewish. But the majority of the church in the city of Ephesus was a Gentile church. And so now he's saying, and you are also included in Christ, verse 13. He's emphasizing this wonderful mystery of Jew and Gentile becoming one. Now, he's going to develop this thought in chapter 2, but he's giving us a hint of this grand theme that is uh, a part of the rich foundation and fabric of the letter that he's writing. But I want to focus on verse 13 for a moment because he says, it says, and you were also included, you Gentiles were also included, which implies what? They used to be excluded. They used to be on the outside looking in. Look at chapter 2, verse 12 for a moment. Well, in verse 11, Paul, starting a new paragraph, says, Therefore, this is chapter 2, verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, you were also called the uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcised. Verse 12, remember this, that at one time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Just look at those points as they're on the screen for you. Excluded. What does it mean to be excluded in a spiritual sense from salvation and redemption? It means you're separated from God's Son. Verse 12, separated from Christ. You're not in Christ, you are what? Outside of Christ. You're an outsider. You're omitted, excluded from God's people 
the nation of Israel. You're not part of the citizenry of, of Israel, and so all the promises to them aren't yours. You're strangers to the covenants of promise. It's like getting mail for someone else. It's not addressed to you. doesn't belong to you. You're not part of the group. And when you're outside of Christ and separated from God's people and separated from God's promises, the result is simply this. We are then without hope and without God in the world. And by the way, those two go together. When you are without God, you are without hope. And that is the condition that many people find themselves in. You say, I don't like that language, outsider. Well, I'm sorry. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Be wise in the way you act toward the outsiders. Jesus used the term in Mark's gospel as well, those on the outside. There are some outside looking in. How do you become an outsider? All you have to do is be born into the human race, and you're in, out. You are in the outside group. You see, because when God created man in the Garden of Eden... In a perfect environment, he gave to them freedom of choice. And Adam and Eve, representing all of their posterity, represented us, just like our representatives do in Washington, voted for us, and they sinned. And that means that everyone born to Adam and Eve were born in the image of God, tainted with sin. It's very interesting. Adam was born in the image of God. His first son, Seth, was born in the image of Adam. What's the image of Adam? The image of God with defilement. And consistently, every person born in the human race is born in that condition, on the outside, looking in. What a horrible term to be on the outside. Longing to be part. Longing to belong. But notice back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, you Gentiles, many of you, you are now included. Come on in. You're part of the group. I love that word, included. I grew up with an, with an older brother. I know what being excluded is all about. Tag along, want to be with his friends. No, get out of here. But then one day, come on, you're part of the group. Are you outside of Christ or in Christ? Did you notice verse 13 says, and you were included where? In Christ. There's that wonderful phrase, Paul uses it about nine times in Ephesians. Someone counted up 169 times that Paul uses this phrase or its equivalent in all of his letters. It's by far one of the most important theological concepts developed in the New Testament. Paul doesn't even call himself a Christian. He uses the term in Christ to describe himself. And remember that great verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation, a new creature. The old has passed away, all things have become new. R.W. Dale said the doctrinal teaching of this epistle is very little more than a development of that single expression, 
in Christ. So to explain what Paul meant by being in Christ would be, to a large extent, to explain his whole theology. I like that. In Christ. Are you inside or outside? Excluded or included? Well, how do I get in? That's usually the question. How do I get in? Well, three things the Bible tells us here. Notice verse 13. And you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So it starts with hearing the good news. Now, here's the bad part about it. You might be here this morning hearing, but you're not hearing. My wife calls it selective hearing. I seem to hear many things quite well, but sometimes when she is talking, I don't hear. It's kind of selective hearing. You might be here listening to a sound, and you've turned it off so that you're not comprehending what is said. There's a difference between hearing and hearing. Hearing noise and understanding the message. So this means to hear the gospel proclaimed in such a way that you comprehend. It is the good news, that's the word gospel, and it is the good news of your salvation. Why do I need to be rescued? Look over the column to chapter 2, verse 3. We are by nature, that is when we are born, objects of wrath. What does that mean? We're under the just condemnation of a holy God. It's not what God wanted to do, but we chose sin, and the result is condemnation. So we hear the gospel. What's the gospel? It's the good news that Jesus died on the cross, that his body was broken, that his blood was shed, that atonement has been made for sin. That's good news about your deliverance from the coming judgment and wrath. You say, no one believes in that stuff anymore. I do. Anyone who embraces the Bible does. But it's not just hearing. You have to believe, verse 13. Once you heard, having believed. And that's a great term. What does it mean? It means to comprehend and to agree and to commit to understand and to commit there's a sense in which you can believe something, but not act on that belief. But when you really believe something, faith must be accompanied with action. Works, the Bible says. If you really believe something, you will respond. If I shout to you one night in your bedroom, the house is on fire, and you say to me, I didn't start it, I'm going back to bed. You don't really believe, do you? But if you begin to smell the smoke and see the flames, you would get out of there so quick because you believe. True belief acts. If I tell you judgment is coming, you'll say, I didn't sin in the garden. I could care less. You don't smell the smoke. You don't see the flames. You don't believe. But when you believe that you're in jeopardy, as the Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the wages of sin is death. When you believe that, then you'll cry out to God, 
Lord, save me. So belief means to understand and to commit. Did you notice that the teaching of election in verse 4 does not contradict human responsibility in verse 13? Because God chooses, you still have to believe. There's no eliminating here of the doctrine. Warren Wiersbe says, even though the Bible teaches election clearly, you still have go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation, and whoever believes is saved. The message goes to everyone. I like how Charles Spurgeon once responded to an individual who said to him, hey, pastor, how can you reconcile God's divine sovereignty and human responsibility? And Spurgeon said, I never reconcile friends. <laughs> yeah, they're friends in the Bible, even if we don't understand. And so here we have the emphasis on human responsibility. You and I must personally believe. And if you want to believe, you can believe. If you seek Christ, you will be redeemed. And then notice what happens when you believe. There's this word called sealing. It's not what is above us. It is the seal that is placed on an official document. When you heard, having believed, you were marked in Christ with a seal, and the seal is the promised Holy Spirit. Now, this word seal is a very interesting Greek word. It, it was used when documents, official documents, were exchanged and the seal of the authority was placed on it. When Jesus was buried, the Roman government put a seal on the tomb to secure it. And only the owner can open the seal. It speaks of ownership. It was like signing your name to a letter. It speaks of security and authenticity. If you get married and you receive the record from the local government, they will have a stamp or a seal embossed on the official copy. It's authentic. It was also used as the first payment in a series of payments. I can remember one time when I leased a car. And they said, you have to give us some money to start out this lease. And they wanted a security deposit and the first payment. Why do I have to give you the first payment? Well, that's just so we know you're into this and that you'll give us the rest. And that's exactly what this seal is. Verse 14, it's a deposit guaranteeing the rest. It's the first payment of many payments. But here's what is amazingly interesting, and it's that this particular Greek word was used in, ancient, in the ancient Greek world of an engagement ring. Now, don't think of all the bad scenarios with an engagement ring. Think of all the good ones. Here's the pledge. I give you this ring, and with this ring, I plan to marry you. Now, here's the neat thing. The Holy Spirit doesn't just give us a seal. He is the seal. He doesn't just give us a down payment. Notice, the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, 
And you go through the Gospels, the Holy Spirit's coming. When I leave, the Holy Spirit is coming. The Comforter is coming. What is Pentecost? The Holy Spirit comes. And now he lives in every believer. When you believe, the promised Holy Spirit comes into your heart and seals you. You belong to God. You're his possession, security. No one can take you away. And this is the first payment of more to come. Verse 14. The Holy Spirit is the deposit guaranteeing the rest of our inheritance. Guaranteeing it until the day of redemption. Look at chapter 4 in Ephesians, verse 30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You say, I thought I was redeemed when I trusted Christ. Yes, you were. But the final installment of that redemption is yet to come. Your body. You're not yet glorified. You were redeemed when you trusted Christ. You are being redeemed as you follow Christ. And one day you will be redeemed when you're glorified in the presence of Christ. But already we are part of that wonderful possession. We are God's possession and all his riches belong to us. This is not a commercial transaction. It is a personal transaction based on love. And the end of all of this is simply the last part of verse 14, and we've seen it repeated before in this wonderful sentence, to the praise of his glorious grace. Please understand this. Sinclair Ferguson said, God's glory is not an enemy of our good. When God goes after his glory, it is also for our good. And what he has done in allowing Christ to die for us is the best thing that could ever happen in the entire world. Suppose you had wealthy parents and they passed away and left you a rather large great gift described in their will. All you knew is that the will was in a cardboard box in their house. With what energy would you dive into every cardboard box you could find to see what the will said? And having found the will, to carefully read every line and then make sure that the will was fulfilled. And you would come away blessing your parents' name for their generosity. Well, when you understand that you are God's inheritance and Christ is ours and everything that Christ has is ours, will you not live to the praise of his glorious name? I once was an outcast stranger on earth, sinner by choice and an alien by birth. But I've been adopted. My name's written down. I'm an heir to a mansion, a robe, and a I'm a child of the king. Child of the king with Jesus as my savior. I'm rich. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to this end of this glorious sentence and we echo the words of the Apostle Paul to the praise of his glorious grace. Help us to go from this place determined to live every day out of gratitude for the one who died in our place 
and redeemed us with his blood. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you sing this familiar chorus with me? I love you, Lord. Let's sing together. Stand with me. the Lord.